Going on 14. Hello, everybody. Welcome to 40 Going on 14. I am Patrick. I'm Joel. I'm Blake. And I'm Josh, and watching One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Ratchet this week is backing up my theory that if your name is Mildred, you are one of two things. Someone, somebody's grandma or fucking evil. Or somebody's evil grandma. Oh, yeah, I guess you could be both. I, I need to modify this theory. Or somebody fucking evil grandma. Yeah. <laughs> all right, well, let's address the elephant in the podcast, first of all. Um <laughs> Mike is not here this week. Uh, instead, we have a guest star in Blake from History of Bad Ideas. Everybody say hi, Blake. Hi, hi Blake. Hi, Blake. Hey. Blake, you want to give us a little bit of information about yourself? Sure, of course. Hey, uh, coming to you live from the Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, History of Bad Ideas. Um, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook. Um, you know, it's great to be back. I haven't uh, seen you guys in over a year. I was kind of missed out on the fact that there was no Gen Con in person this past year because normally I like to come up and bother you guys and, and you watch your instant game shows. And I've I've grown a full inch over the last year. <laughs> Sideways. <laughs> Out. You know, we are we are podcasting brethren. I think uh we started shortly after you guys, and I know we've cross pollinated mm-hmm. in the past you know, several times back and forth. So I do have to ask, uh, when do you guys move on to 50 going on 15? Like we're getting there. I mean, I was <laughs> not yet 40 when we started this uh, seven, eight years ago. I was the, I still am the baby of the group. I was like 37, 38 when we started. And we're, I, we're creeping up. I am 17 and a half months away from being 50. That's, and I'm the first one. Yep, and then Mike, and then me, and then eventually Josh. Eventually me, yeah. So, yeah. So but. eventually, you guys will eventually be able to drive, right? There you go. <laughs> eventually, <laughs> but for now, you'll find us uh, twelve—not twelve noon on Saturdays. We're not twelve noon on Saturdays anymore. We're still on Geek Life Radio, though, uh, along with such shows as All Things Transformers, The Shining Wizards Wrestling Podcast. HTML, all the things, and Geek Life Radio's own Rad Dad Radio are the Schmorgishborg. Bomb, bomb, bomb. Is that it? Mm, getting there. That's definitely not it, though. Oh. Eventually. Uh, speak, eventually. But for now, you can find us on iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podverse FM, uh, NoonFM.com, uh, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, Amazon Music, and of course, uh, we're always on Podbean, where we'd be happy to have any of your reviews or ratings. Um, and you can reach us uh, all the normal places, social media, and give us a call at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. Ditto. <laughs> do, we have, <laughs> do we have any listener feedback? Speaking of which, any, I any sure hope else? not. No, Voicemails, emails, none of that. Nope. No, no, nobody loves us. No, oh, what a bunch he, of jerks. He said because he totally checked the voicemail number. <laughs> I think he did. That was convincing. That's yeah. Cool. Yeah. He, you definitely, you, your bluff definitely worked on Joel. All right. Well, then without further ado, I think it's about that time. This week in music, movies, and TV. And spigot is spigot is What the, the hell, hell was that? that? <laughs> 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 ah.
I don't know. I can't do the high voice because it loses me. So that's right. Oh, yeah. Well, don't do that voice either. Because, no. I mean, we want that lost and that it's not going anywhere. It's All right. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if that caught. <laughs> <laughs> this weekend, uh, we're doing November 19th, 1975. That is the release of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. All right. So music. The number one song in the land was Island Girl by Elton John, followed up by Lion Eyes by the Eagles. Two good songs. Yeah, I love Lion Lion Eyes. Eyes Oh, watching you. No, not that one. Lion Eyes. Not that one? No, not that one. Lion Eyes is uh, probably the song when it comes to fronting a band I have sung more than any other. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, it's just wild because uh, like, it almost doesn't matter your age. You probably know that song. It's fairly easy to play. And it's just a nice, easy, yeah, easy listening type song that if you don't listen to it, it sounds like it, you know it's a, it's about a nice couple. <laughs> if you don't listen to the words, kind of like oh, that's also like true of Island Girl. <laughs> you don't listen to the words; it's probably about a nice couple. <laughs> no, I said it, it. It sounds like it's about a nice couple if you don't listen to the words. Okay, never mind. Same is also true of Berserker. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a point. Yeah, I, th- I think I may have lost my point somewhere. Move along, son. All right. Would you like to make him fuck? <laughs> I think he's talking about a romantic love. <laughs> Sing to the world. They sound like a nice couple. Uh, point taken. Now shut up. All right. So uh, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody went to number one in the UK, where it remained for the last five and the first four weeks of 1976. Otherwise known as the Wayne's World song. Uh, yes. It yeah, that's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it definitely <laughs> made it... <laughs> it definitely made a big, big difference in, in the, the everlasting success of Bohemian Rhapsody. For sure. Like, I'd heard Queen before uh, Wayne's World came out, but I'm not entirely sure I had heard Bohemian Rhapsody more than once. It really wasn't... I mean, it was kind of semi-popular when it first came out, but it just was like a flash of the pan. It only lasted a couple of weeks at number one. It wasn't like a phenomenon or anything. Right. What I would have known would have been We Are the Champions and We Will Rock You before yeah. Wayne's World. After yep. that, like I celebrated their whole catalog, as we've said previously, talking about Queen. I mean, it's still, I'm in love with, no, I love, I'm in love with my car, but I mean, what is? Okay. Well, then. Why do you, why, why, why? Why what? Why do you do that? Bring up I'm in love with my car? Yeah. Brian May needs some love once in a while. Well, Brian May is amazing. That song is is butt, though. (laughs) Oh, well. Moving on. Should I insert a bicycle joke here? Uh, That that song is not good either, but yeah. I like that song. It's not great. It's a fun song. It's a fun song. Fun sucks. Fat Bottom Girls, My Best Friend. Yeah, those are great songs. Headlong. Yeah. Themed Iron Eagle. <laughs> Give me some fried chicken. I love that ending. Right? Yeah. Speaking of which, thank you, Patrick, for that video. You're welcome. That was that delicious. Was, yeah, yeah, that did look delicious. Uh, all right, moving on. Travis Barker, drummer for Blink-182 and Plus 44, was born in Fontana, California on November 14th. I was yep. pretty confused by that uh, blink minus one eight two and plus four four. <laughs> <laughs> it was some sort of weird algebra on the show notes. 
<laughs> You've been doing too much homework. I think right? so. <laughs> it's new math. <laughs> I have to solve for blink. What the hell is blink? <laughs> Released November 18th, the fourth studio album by Rufus. Rufus featuring Chaka Khan eventually won 1976 Billboard Album of the Year. Chaka and Khan. one of Patrick's favorite artists, Chaka Khan. Chaka Khan. Chaka Khan. Great 80s song, yeah. See, and, and just another step in my lifelong proof of 70s musicians. This album and Shaka was good back then. And then in the 80s, fell apart like wet elephant poop. Like just all the, all, if you were a good musician in the 70s, you sucked in the 80s. That's the thesis. But wouldn't that uh, also carry over for uh, rock bands that went into the disco era and then came back out in the 80s yeah like almost like yeah. those rolling like the rolling stones disco album i forget what was that that was horrible or, or even you know kiss even had some disco songs too yeah everybody got sucked metal. into that Ugh. yeah hmm. i know that's not gonna make the show <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to think of somebody to to disprove that but so far everybody i've come up with uh, we've occasionally taken issue with a, a couple of points, but usually, even if we love the song in the '80s, uh, Patrick will not abandon his thesis. And I would, I believe you're about seventy percent true. You just believe you're about ninety-five percent true. Yeah, because you guys like some songs that suck. Like I just called to say I love you as much as I love Stevie Wonder. That's a bad song. It's just saccharine and crappy. There's like the 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 backbeat is like a like a Casio preset backbeat. I mean, it's just the whole song, and it's just sappy uh, as shit. And oh, I got that, one. That's not as good R and B stuff. You're absolutely right. Yeah, Michael Jackson. Oh, Ooh. all of his best stuff us. is in the '80s. Yeah, but he uh, had quite the career in the '70s as well. True, good stuff. There's at least one. I think he dressed better in the seventies too. I mean, <laughs> if 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 you have to go to basically one of the most transcendent pop stars of all time to find your champion, I'll I'll give you that concession because there's not a whole lot of Michael Jacksons out there. Hold on, I'm writing this down on my diary so I can never forget. <laughs> not a whole lot. <laughs> Patrick said something good. And if you're going to uh, Stevie Wonder. You can't just cherry pick because part-time lover is amazing, and it was in the eighties. I don't know. I don't know Ooh. if I would. I seriously would not call that song amazing. I mean, it's it's okay. It's got a decent beat, you know. But I mean, the lyrics are kind of repetitive, and you know, they're it's it's basically a song about uh about adulterers. So I don't know how great of it, it of a song it is. I mean, it's okay. Being about adulterers, that's that's relevant. In the same way that we're talking about lion eyes. Oh, well, if you, don't, you... if you don't listen to the lyrics, neither yeah, one of those songs. Both of those songs are about nice couples. There we That's go. Right. And that questionable island girl. I mean, come on. <laughs> island girl? Question mark. <laughs> and finally, Dirks Bentley, American country singer, was born in Phoenix, Arizona, on February nineteenth. Is Bentley's... that his real name? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's his real name. Oh. Huh. Uh, Bentley's nine studio albums have accounted for 25 singles on the Hot Country Songs and Country Airplay charts, of which 17 have reached number one. Seven more of his singles have reached the top five. And I can't name a one. I can't name one either. I... Oh, well, his, his big one was one of his first ones, too. Um... 
I legit oh, if you if you ain't loving, no, that's that's George Strait. Um, I'm yeah. actually looking Shit. up his biggest hits, and I still don't know any. Give, of these give me the name of the, the of the first one that came up. Drunk on a plane? No, not that one. <laughs> that's literally his biggest hit because that's how Google. Oh, what's that? What's after that? Oh, then? Gone. What was I thinking? Gone. Yeah, that one. What was I thinking? That's the one that I know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nothing about trains and tears and beers and pickup trucks. Oh yeah, that, that what was I thinking is all about that kind of stuff because it's all about his regrets of you know what he did while he was drinking. So true. I know oh, what drink. I would. I know what I was drinking, but what was I thinking? Is you know. <laughs> yeah, or you know, drinking—that's the only way to fly. <laughs> that's I the only way. To the word, so I thought it was about a nice couple. That's a the pilot's <laughs> motto. Shut up. All right. <laughs> Moving on to movies. The number one movie in the land was Three Days of the Condor, a political thriller dr- directed by Sidney Pollack and starring Robert Redford, Faye Dunaway, Cliff Robertson, and Max von Sydow. This the is a movie thing- that Mike would have seen for sure. For sure. The only, the only thing I remember of this movie is uh, weren't they like uh, racing in a car on the highway next to the ocean? That's the only thing I remember. And I've seen so, this movie. That's I think thing you're I thinking remember. of Condor Man. <laughs> I've seen that one. <laughs> no, you're, Not this right. one. I've seen that one. Three Days of the Condor. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think I've ever seen this. I think Max von Sydow was only 80 years old at the time, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, so this was 10 years after he was born? <laughs> I mean, it's got a hell of a cast, but I don't think, yeah, I, maybe. I may have to watch this. All right. Uh, movies released oh, this week included. I'm sorry, you know what? You know what I was thinking. I was thinking of The Graduate. Somebody, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Two very different movies, but <laughs> similar cars and roads and you know California coastway. All right. I'm sorry. I was thinking of Warriors. Uh, movies released this week included Stardust, In of the Damned, Inserts, Macintosh and TJ, Fear Over the City, Permission to Kill. The Human Factor, and the acronym of the week, which is A-B-A-H-D, which I'm pretty sure stands for ABBA Brutalizes All Hungarian Disco. Whoa. <laughs> it's a regular Waterloo. <laughs> nope, sorry. I, I, I can't believe that's not what it is. It is actually a boy and his dog. Yeah, that's oh, the only was... one of these I've seen. He was close. I don't think I've seen any of those. And if that's the case, if these movies were released this week, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest had a very good shot of becoming as popular as it did. Yeah, if this was the competition, I want to go see Macintosh. Not good. I want to see Macintosh and TJ again. Have you seen that? No. That sounds like a buddy cop show, right? Yeah, or or a buddy cop and his dog, or his monkey. Well, I know Joel and I watched a boy and his dog together. That's the one with uh, John Travolta. Macintosh. No, it's not John Travolta. It's uh, Miami Vice. Uh, oh, I was thinking a boy, a boy in the boy in the bubble. Macintosh and TJ that premieres right after uh, Ten Speed and Brown Shoe. <laughs> You're thinking of Don Johnson. Don <laughs> Johnson. This, yes, yeah. this is was the most apocalyptic uh, sci-fi uh, movie that is boring as shit. I believe it's a little rapey too. Yes. Right. Was uh, Macintosh and TJ? Was that the uh, prequel to BJ and the Bear? <laughs> it's it's a story of the forming of Apple and, and Trader Joe's. Oh. <laughs> I thought that was fear over the city. All right, moving on to TV. <laughs> All right. 
Moving on to television, that's my cue. The top shows in the land were All in the Family, Rich Man, Poor Man, Laverne and Shirley, and Maude. Oh, that's, a, that's a good lineup right there. That's a, mm-hmm. that's a roller coaster is what that is, because I don't know. Yeah, Maude, oof. I never liked Maude. As a kid, I never liked Maude, but as an adult, I've seen some episodes, and it's not as bad as I thought it was. Okay, you know what? Yeah, maybe I need to revisit it as an adult, because I, yeah. I haven't watched it in a long time, so. Just yeah, got to no, wait for someone to reboot Maud. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. All the, you just wait. That's what Hollywood does. I hope There's, they reboot Laverne and Shirley first. Oh, no. I, I, I was, uh, as a latchkey kid, I mean, I was babysat by Laverne and Shirley. Oh, I love that show so much. My, my cat is named Boo Boo Kitty. Oh, that's so appropriate. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And, of course, I mean, how, how can you – how come, Len, you know, Lenny and Squiggy – Never got their own spinoff show. <laughs> yeah. Didn't they try that? Oh, they may have. I thought oh. they did. Well, maybe that's why I don't remember it if it didn't go that well. The Lone Wolves. <laughs> the Lone Wolves, exactly. And why didn't Milk and Pepsi ever take... Oh, right. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, it tastes, it, it tastes bad. It tastes like a, it tastes like a flat shake. <clears throat> I was going to ask if you had tried it. Yep. Okay, I have an answer. They did make a pilot for a Lenny and Squiggy in the Army show, and uh, it was not picked up. In the Army? What, did they get drafted for Vietnam or something? I guess, yeah. It was, yeah, the head writer of Laverne and Shirley uh, uh, was asked that question, why there was never a spinoff, and they made a pilot. It was called Lenny and Squiggy in the Army, and ABC passed on it. Yeah, what a what a horrible setting for the two of them. Why would you put them in a place that restricts the shit out of them? Like they're not oh. Gomer Pyle, you know. They can't. They're not just going to go along with everything. Like, oh, that's just horrible. I mean, maybe that's the comedy they were going for. These two greasers being forced into the army, being drafted, and then the yeah. horrors of war. <laughs> oh, that's a good TV. Bloody and Squiggy PTSD edition. <laughs> It wasn't a sitcom. It was a drama. That's why. <laughs> Lenny's just off in the corner, rocking back and forth, chewing on his hand. <laughs> Squiggy's got a gun in his mouth in the bathroom. That's it. Mash gone wrong. <laughs> Lenny and Squiggy mashed. Oh, <laughs> oh my. Oh, okay. Uh, so uh, I guess I should move on. On November 23rd, Sneak Previews, the first American film review show premiered. This launched the careers of your guys' Chicago's critics, uh, Gene Siskel and Robert Ebert, who remained a staple among film critics as a team through various programs for the next 24 years, and I must add, much copied and imitated even to this day. Oh, for sure. And I think everybody, myself included, forgot that their show wasn't just called Siskel and Ebert. It was actually called Sneak Previews. I'd completely forgotten that. I used to love watching that, even though I hadn't seen half the movies at the time it was on the air. Probably not even that many. Uh, I always enjoyed watching it. Yeah, I always had a good time uh, listening to those two, uh, Boehner back and forth. You know, they they had some good conversation and and, uh, some good chemistry and and, um, really enjoyed them very much. As, as much as I disagreed with a lot of their views, especially Roger Ebert, got yeah. a lot of respect for that man. And uh, if you guys haven't seen his the documentary on him, Life Itself, um, it's really it's really good. Um, it's a little hard to watch sometimes after he has his jaw removed. 
uh, mm. yeah, that's right. He had uh, jaw cancer, right? It's a little cancer. jarring to watch, but <laughs> yeah, but the technology they used, considering how much talking he'd done to basically recreate his own voice, yeah, it's pretty cool. Oh, and apparently it was only called sneak previews from '77 to '82. Then it was at the movies from '82 to '86. And then it was just Siskel and Ebert, which is what I remembered from 86 to 99. I yeah, vaguely I, remember all three of these shows. I remembered it as at the movies. I remember that. That was my first introduction to them, too. All right. Now, I know you guys are waiting for this one. On November 16th, Donnie and Marie, an American variety show, debuted. The show starred brother and sister, Donnie and Marie, Osmond, Donnie had become popular singing a music group because he was a little bit rock and roll. The Osmonds and Marie, well, you know, was one of the youngest sisters to reach number one in the Billboard country music with charts with paper roses because she is a little bit country. Yes, I watched the show, obviously. Yeah, I, I, I do not have happy memories of the show, but it's definitely something I watched. It was one hundred percent something I watched because um, I don't know, I don't know if you guys remember the little secret, uh, embarrassing confession I made one show about the whole my former love for Donny Osmond. I wanted to be him. He was kind of cool. I used to tell people. I used to tell people that was my name, Donny. <laughs> I, I always. I, uh... I went through a phase where I was like signing my paperwork as Donny. <laughs> teachers, teachers, my my. By, by elimination, figured out who it was. You know, you know. Yeah. Uh, wearing a football helmet, painting it black, and calling it his hair. <laughs> <laughs> Big collar shirts, and bell bottom pants, and rhinestones. Man, making very you know subtly overtly su- subtle overtly sexual innuendo between me and my sister. You know that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, oh boy! <laughs> and we're too, here too, again. Too soon. <laughs> You know, they'd mix things up when they brought in their other 20 brothers and sisters from Utah. <laughs> Look, there's far too much hugging going on here on set. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I would have to say, in regards to her uh, health food commercials, she's aged very well. It's either that or she's had a very good plastic surgeon. I think it's a combination of both. Yeah, she she looks great. Yeah, it's amazing. Now, Donnie, I can't say. I haven't seen him. So. I don't he looks good, too. I mean, he was, yeah, he was on The Masked Singer, like, season two or so, or season one. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah and they, he looked good, too. They both they both look like they're in their <laughs> early 40s. They just got the genetics. No, they made a deal with the devil. No, I think that that's be? probably it. That's how they got their show. Wouldn't that be ironic? Don't, don't you think? think. <laughs> 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 Moving on Actually, to... You you should trademark that real quick because I think you do have a good movie there. How Donnie and Marie got their show. Donnie and Marie and the Devil. That's right. And the Devil makes three. The Devil and Miss Osmond. <laughs> or a Netflix series. Oh, that's that's a likelihood. Like a true crime documentary, but the Osmonds. I'm trying to think what it would be called. I don't know, but they're gonna have uh, Tiger King interview him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? He he actually like. Fits their era and genre of clothes and hair. I mean, he's dead in. It, it it's probably trying to play to the other chat. <laughs> Josh, yes, you were you were saved by Octave <laughs> refusing to play what a fool believes. <laughs> it's a thought. Right. Moving on to sports. 
On February 19th, Cincinnati Reds second baseman Joe Morgan was named National League MVP. Hooray for Cincinnati. (laughs) On February 18th, Calvin Murphy of the Houston Rockets ended his then-NBA record streak of 58 games with a made free throw. Yay, Cincinnati. Yay. Actually, wasn't this because uh, somebody coughed when he was on the line? Yeah, that happens all the time, though. I mean, it, or it, it, I no, I know what it was. It was a squiggly noodle. It was the first time the squiggly noodles made their appearance in the uh, NBA arenas. Well, who? Which team was he on? <laughs> he was Army with Lenny Noodle. Oh, <laughs> that's right. All right, Chris Moneymaker, American poker player, whose 2004 win at the World Series of Poker main event sparked the modern day poker boom was born November 21st, and that should say 2003 win, not 2004. Is that his real name? Yes, that actually is his real name, which is one of the reasons him winning was such a big deal, because it made such good television. He was an an accountant named Moneymaker, and he entered a $80 tournament online to win a seat into a bigger tournament to win a seat into the $10,000 buy-in tournament. And he won those two tournaments and got into the main event and ended up winning the whole thing and been a millionaire ever since because of it. Talk about being uh, shoehorned in by your name. Right? I know. And it caught on. I mean, he went, you know, I mean, and it's it's honestly literally part of the reason why I could make a living in poker is, <laughs> is because of Chris Moneymaker. Because... He got so popular, and it made po- it made poker so popular so fast and so quick. Like he was on Letterman, he was on. Uh, I mean, he was he was doing you know book tours and you know all kinds of stuff, and it, it made a, an enormous poker boom that we're still kind of surfing the wave of. Well, I'm glad I changed my last name from Fart Sniffer. Mm. <laughs> well, if it would Imagine- make you as successful as Moneymaker, you'd take it. <laughs> Imagine the life you would have had. I mean, at least, your last, at least your last name's not Shit Shoveler. <laughs> right. I was going to say, who's who's the guy he beat to for, to win that poker championship? Was it is his last name like uh, Fourth Street Checker? <laughs> no, actually, it was Sam Farha, who is from Houston, and he's a guy that I actually have dealt to, and I know him. Oh wow! Yeah, like he he lives here in Houston. He plays in in some of the games I deal. If you dealt it, I smelt it. Joel Fart Sniffer. <laughs> It was a Lenny and Squeaky I, Grenade joke. I, yeah, I started thinking about it, and it got funnier and funnier, you idiot. <laughs> All right, and let's get the hell out of this tweet, this last bullet point. Jason Williams, NBA point guard and member of the 2006 NBA champion Miami Heat, was born in Bell, West Virginia on November 18th. Nicknamed White Chocolate, he was known for flashy and jaw-dropping plays on the court. <laughs> And not to be confused with Jason Shotgun Williams from the NBA. Right. Yeah. Not to, no, no. <laughs> big, big difference. Big, big difference. NT, big difference. Can you imagine being Jason Williams? I mean, that Jason Williams, and then having another Jason Williams come through and just like totally screw your name up. It'd be like <laughs> Chris Moneymaker had a twin brother who just like sucked at poker. It was bankrupt. Instead, instead of winning the WSOP, he shot the dealer. Like the last Boy Scout. <laughs> and, and instead of being an accountant, he was like a busboy or something. <laughs> washing dishes. 
Oh my god, we need to get out of this tree. Play us off, keyboard Joel. Na 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 na. Guys, you got the same musical talent that we have on our podcast. <laughs> All right, so this week's show, we are doing uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest versus the new Netflix show, Ratched. It has one season on it. Uh, we'll be covering that in the now. But for the then, we're going to talk about the 1975, like I said, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, give a quick summary here. Um, written by Jacob Oberfrank, whoever that is. Is anybody familiar with that name? Oh, yeah. Everybody knows Jacob Oberfrank. Yeah. Well, his name is my name, too. All right. McMurphy I was has waiting ex- for the Jingleheimer Schmidt joke, <laughs> and you did not disappoint. I don't like to disappoint. Well, <laughs> I don't like to. Just because I do something a lot doesn't mean I like to do it. Like masturbation. Well... <laughs> no, then no, I like to do that. Don't we all? <laughs> McMurphy <laughs> has a criminal past and has once again gotten himself into trouble and is sentenced by the court. To escape labor duties in prison, McMurphy pleads insanity and is sent to a ward for the mentally unstable. Once here, McMurphy both endures and stands witness to the abuse and degradation of the oppressive nurse Ratched, who gains superiority and power through the flaws of the other inmates. McMurphy and the other inmates band together to make a rebellious stance against the atrocious nurse Ratched. Actually, a fairly reasonable summary. Yeah, it's a little it's a little wordy, but it's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I would. Have- I don't know if I'm jumping the gun or not, but was Nurse Ratchet really oppressive in this movie? Now, oh, yeah. now that I watch it as an adult as compared to, you know, a young child, I remember watching this movie with my dad, you know, because he was a big Jack Nicholson fan. And I remember back then I was, you know, kind of disturbed by it. But as an adult, doesn't Nurse Ratchet kind of get a bad rap in this? Uh, the I, movie I version? don't think so. I, I think, think this. So. I think this is definitely something we should save for later. Yeah, for sure. I think that okay. is definitely something we need to talk about. I think that's a great question, but I think yeah, we're we're jumping a little too far off in the deep end from the beginning. All right, so yeah, let's hit up cast and crew and uh, some trivia, and we'll we'll, we'll circle back, back. Yeah. Yeah. So this is uh, directed by Milos Forman. Uh, anybody heard of him? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> for sure. That was I hope so. Yeah. Oh. Nope. That was a trick question. Okay. Yeah, a little bit of a jokey joke. Yeah. <laughs> he has directed um a lot of a lot of things been uh he's known throughout Hollywood. So <laughs> I don't think I need to necessarily go through his list. Everybody knows him, right? Milo's former. Yeah. I mean the big ones like Amadeus, People versus Larry Flint. I'd say this is probably the biggest. Yeah, Man on the Moon. I don't know. I like that one a lot. Mm-hmm. Hair. Long, I like, beautiful hair. I like hair. It's one of my favorite musicals. Yeah. All right. So I guess we'll go over a couple of things he did. But yeah, uh, Milos. Hmm. Yeah, Milos Forman. Uh, the writing credits: uh, Lawrence Haubin, Bo Goldman, and the novel was originally written by Ken Kesey. Uh, anybody? Any of you guys have read the novel? Yes. I have as well. So cool. Yes, I I have read the novel nice. as a young adult. Having seen the movie first, it was a pleasant surprise. Same here, yeah, yeah. Josh, have you read it? This is the rare. Normally, I'm the one of the people talking who has read the book. This is the time I'm the only one who hasn't. That's great. Yeah, I was going to point that out if you hadn't. I was like, this would be the first time. Yeah, we've all read it and Josh hasn't. Wow. 
Yeah, he's usually the one that's read the book. Um, and then uh, for some reason we have the play version of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was written by Dale Wasserman. Well, I mean the the play was a big deal. I don't know if it's in. Uh, I'm trying to get to the. That was the Michael Douglas stuff. Yep. Or Kirk Douglas. Sorry. Kirk Douglas. Yeah, not Michael. Hmm. Or he played McMurphy on Broadway. Well, I was yeah. not familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah, he handed it over to Mike for this movie. He's one of the producers, and it's also why his name's associated with Ratchet. That is all correct. I'm blowing the trivia. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's all good. That's all good. Um, you know, one of the interesting things uh, uh, I wanted to say about the novel before we moved on past uh, Ken Kessie's novel um, is it is from the point of view of, of Chief himself, which was the surprising thing when I, yes. when I read it. Yeah, it's, It was very good. Yeah, I was not expecting that. So, neither was I, honestly. Tell you the truth, and as a kindred brother, there it, it is like, oh, hey, because you expect it to be from R.P. Mc, you know, R.P. McMurphy's point of view, yeah. because that, that was the movie. Yeah, exactly. And then hearing, you know, seeing and hearing everything from his his point of view, and it made the movie make a little more sense because you understand the the gravitas of him talking about how you know, how small he feels. And he's like, now I feel as big as a mountain right now and everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gives you a lot more context for his character and the things he says. For sure. For sure. In the film. Yeah. Uh, before we get too much into that again, let's go through the cast. Uh, we're going to go through, this is in alphabetical order. I'm going to pick and choose some of these because there's a lot of them to go through. Uh, the, the semi-famous, uh, Hey, it's that guy, Michael Berryman plays <laughs> Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> semi-famous in horror circles he's a legend yeah exactly he's you know he's known in, in in strict circles very well and most circles not at all um moving on uh scatman crothers appearing in yet another Jack yeah. movie, playing turkle the guard uh the easily bought turkle the guard <laughs> it's my job um yeah right uh <laughs> A young and still short uh, Danny DeVito playing Martini. Um, I, I, I bet a dime. <laughs> it's not a dime. It's, it's a nickel. Shit. <laughs> this is nothing. He is so young and unrecognizable. I swear to God, every time I see him in the movie, I think that he's Bob Hoskins. <laughs> and I was watching it with Laura. I'm like, all right, you're going to see some familiar faces. And she could not pick him out for the longest time. Oh, wow. That is awesome. Yeah. He's great. Hit me. Hit me. <laughs> Hit me. I like to see the cards. <laughs> Hit me. <laughs> uh, Joseph Alec as Bencini. One of the nurses is Lan Fenders. I guess, we, you know, the famous Louise Fletcher as Nurse Wretched herself. Um, Louise Fletcher. Was she, what, what else was she in? Let's, let's, was she in anything? Anybody? She won an Academy like Award this. for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is obviously what she was most known for. She did uh, a couple like Star Trek episodes and Flowers in the Attic. She was in Firestarter. Like yeah, so unfortunately not, not much of a career past this, but she did win the Academy Award. I mean, she was still working until a couple of years ago. Yeah. Still alive. Yeah. Good career, yeah. Just solid, solidly under the radar. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sidney Lassick as Cheswick, who basically uh, idolized 
McMurphy and you know wanted to be his little lackey as much as he could until the day they electro- electrocuted the shit out of him and then he realized <laughs> that McMurphy was not a superhero. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christopher Lloyd, uh, another one, uh, young Christopher Lloyd. Never the heard professor. of him. Yeah, you may know him as uh, from, from such things as Taxi, Back to the Future. 20 bucks. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah. Yeah, the, it's a, it's interesting that you got two taxi alums here in this movie. Yep. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, he plays Tabor, another one of the inmates. Uh, Ellsworth, another inmate, is played by Dwight Marfield. Uh, Rose, one of the two girls that gets snuck in. Uh, who was the other girl? Rose Candy. and Candy. Yeah, Rose and Candy. Rose being played by Louisa Moritz and Candy being played by Muse Small. Yeah, and Louisa Moritz, uh, she was a st- uh, stock, like, 70s. She was in uh, a couple Cheech and Chong movies. She was in Death Race. But not Death Race 2000? Yeah, Death Race 2000 with uh, David Carradine. Ah. Yeah, she was She was in that. She was in the Rockford Files, like, uh, Happy Hooker Goes to Washington. Like, she was a, st- a standard female actor if they needed somebody pretty. For a movie in the seventies, kind of like Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to the next one, the star of the show, the famous uh, Jack Nicholson. Again, like Milos Forman, do I really need to go into his CV? Um, no. Jack Nicholson, one of the most famous members of Hollywood. This was an early film of his before he was huge. This was a movie that kind of almost made him. The first movie, well, we're going to get to that in the trivia, I'm sure, talking about the Oscars, so, yeah. But he plays the R.P. McMurphy, Randall Patrick McMurphy, the uh, lead of the movie. The spark, the MacGuffin, the, the, the guy who makes everything happen. The anti-hero. Yeah, really he is. And then next we have William Redfield, um, famous character actor, playing Harding. In his last role, if I remember correctly, or pretty close to, he he died like the next year hmm. after this. Will Sampson as Chief Bromden. Ah, juicy fruit. <laughs> <laughs> he was so good. Yeah, this is a, this is a great role. Obviously, um, Vincent Chavelli as Fredrickson, another one of the inmates who like. Uh, very much, very much like Michael Berryman is uh, not known by most, but very well known by certain circles. Oh, for sure! Like he is a very distinctive character actor. Yep. Yeah, when you see him, you're like, I know that guy. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. You're just like, I know that guy, and boy, does he look good in this film as that part. Yeah, and I mean, he played a lot of different things in Men in Black. Um, because he he fit the he fit the roles very well. Um, he's also the a better angry ghost and ghost. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And then lastly, the one last one we'll talk about is a very very young Brad Dorif as Billy Bibbit. Billy Bibbit. This this was the first movie he was in. The an introducing credit at the end of the opening credits. And what an introduction there. Yeah, Brad Dorif, who, if you are not familiar with Brad Dorif, uh, get familiar. There's odds are that you have been seen 
at least a dozen movies he's been in and not even known it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, yeah, one of one of the things that bothered me when I was watching this again for homework for this episode, I said I kept looking at uh, Billy. I'm like, I know that guy. I <laughs> really know that guy because he, you know, same thing. He's got very distinct eyes and facial features and stuff. And then, of course, I had to cheat and go look it up because I couldn't pinpoint it. I was like, he's worm tongue. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of the things he's been, in, we can go through it. He's, Played the Doc in Deadwood. Yeah, Doc Cochran is where I usually think of him first. That or Star Trek. Well, he's been, like you said, he's he's been in, uh, what else? He's Chucky. Yeah, he played the voice of Chucky, yeah. Yep, he was in uh, Nightwatch with Ewan McGregor, which is a personal favorite of mine to share. I mean, he's, he's, he's a chameleon of an actor. He Like Gary Oldham, he just disappears in his roles. He was uh, Sheriff Brackett in the Rob Zombie Halloween films, which was pro- probably my favorite part of, of those films, his portrayal. But yeah, so um, very, very young Brad Dourif. Fun, fun to watch him act his ass off from a young age. All right, so moving on to trivia. Will Sampson as Chief Bromden was a park ranger in Oregon near where the movie was filmed. He was selected for the part because he was the only Native American the casting department could find who matched the character's incredible size. I knew that, actually. Thank God he had some acting ability. (laughs) I mean, you know, because he doesn't say a lot, but he still has to interact and play that character. And all things considered, I'd say he nailed it. For a character that doesn't say a lot, he's got a lot of presence in the movie. Yes. And when he does speak, it's very, it's very soft, you know, contrary to like somebody that big you think would be so, you know, so verbose. Next one, Louise Fletcher was so disturbed by her own performance that she couldn't watch the film for years. I'm shocked by this, really. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to combine another one of these bullet points. She was so upset with the fact that other cast members could laugh and be happy during filming while she had to be cold and heartless that near the end of production, she removed her dress and stood only in her panties to, to prove to the cast members. She was not a quote, cold hearted monster. And it was also the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> and Milos Foreman, you know, he, he does require some nude scenes. So. Lenny and squeaky were unavailable. <laughs> They were working on They were in the army. (laughs) (laughs) And Dean R. Brooks was a psychiatrist and director of the Oregon State Hospital where the film was made. During filming, Brooks correctly diagnosed William Redfield with leukemia that would kill him 18 months later. There you go. Wow. Damn. That sucks. You're on this big movie that went on to, you know, be this huge Academy award-winning phenomenon and what's your memory of it i found that i had cancer and then eventually he passed away that's yeah dean r brooks was the guy who played dr spivey the one who checked him in and everything and and gave him his entrance interview Hmm. interesting and lastly something i was going to say um uh, earlier second of only three movies the other two being it happened one night and the silence of the lambs to win every major Academy Award. 
meaning best picture, best actor, best actress, best director, best screenplay, adapted or original. So it was a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all right. Yeah, it is okay. So yeah, that's the cast and trivia, and now is the time we can. You know, it's no Macintosh and TJ, but. <laughs> so I'll start with the traditional question, even though I know the answer. This is not anyone's first time watching this, I presume. No, it it is it is interesting. I haven't seen this movie probably for maybe twenty years. I mean, when I first saw this, like I said earlier, I, you know, it was when I was a kid and I was watching it with my dad. And then, of course, later I read the book, was pleasantly surprised that it was from Chief's perspective, and I thought it was better. And then, you know, like I just watched it this weekend, you know, to get ready for you guys. And I watched it again. I'm like, man, this is a really good movie. And then through a different prism, like I brought up before, I, in the movie version, I, I don't think Louise Fletcher plays such a horrible person as, as Mildred. I ratchet. I look at it now and I'm like, well, she's doing her job. She's trying to keep everybody under control, keep everybody, you know, but I, when I was a kid, I always thought it was like more extreme, but obviously the, the worst thing she did was threaten to tell Billy about, you know, his sex capade to his, his mother. Now, whether, well, he, whether she did know him or not, whether she's lying or telling the truth. I don't know. I see. I I work in mental health care basically, and since I'm in special ed schools, and you do not manipulate people, giving them access to services or medication based on whether or not they're doing what you say. Mm. That that's fucked up. Yeah. So yeah, I I I do think she's definitely horrid. Now she she is a lighter version of the character than we're going to talk about uh, in the second half. <laughs> But uh, she's definitely a manipulator and rules with an iron fist. And a lot of the stuff she cracks down on, it's mildly disruptive. Like, we're not talking about people doing harm to themselves or harm to others, which is, Ooh. in mental health care, that's going to be like, that's when you intervene. Yeah. But she's just like, yeah, I don't like that these people aren't doing exactly things my way when I say, how I say and uh yeah she she definitely manipulates and controls hmm. now see when i've seen this movie i've lost count how many times i've seen it it's one of the first dvds i ever bought and uh uh matt brown and i used to watch this on the regular in college uh freshman year and so like it's one of those movies i can actually i actually can quote but I I tend to agree with Blake and and as I was rewatching it and then moved on to the series some of her methodology may not be appropriate and especially in this day and age would be you know probably grounds for dismissal but you know I feel like she's kind of got a little bit of a, a uh, like they made her out to be too well I mean in the in the even Ken Kesey was a little surprised that she became this kind of metaphor for the whole kind of messed up system because she is trying to maintain control in a situation that can be a little chaotic. And, um, I, but I don't feel like, I feel like her heart's in the right place. She's just not quite got the right tools to do the job. Cause I think she does care about the inmates while well, the the patients. 
To the extent that they don't defy her, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the key, is I think she sees them as inmates, not as people. And that is exactly the wrong attitude. Like, you're in the wrong business if you care more about control and you care at all about your ego. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing, is she works with her ego. Like, most of the problems aren't necessarily a problem where the unit is being disrupted and things are going to get dangerous. It's she's taking it personally because things are supposed to be her way, and they always have been. And as soon as her ego's threatened, she snaps back, and she snaps back pretty hard. But I yeah. don't know how much of that is her decision, though. Yeah, uh, I, I think... I, I, I think I don't have the perspective of, you know, real life and professionalism in regards to, you know, mental health care and, and stuff. But, and, and you do, you, both you guys bring up some really good points that I really think about, but, you know, is, is she, she snaps into that. Uh, what, what do you think that she's doing is actually defensive because when she's running the group therapy sessions, you know, she's working, she's asking questions, she's trying to get people to answer and participate in when in Murphy's like, you know, this is all bullshit. What the hell you guys are doing? And she's like, I think she's honestly doing what she thinks is correct and right because she points out, she's like, well, you know, she goes around to the, the, the group saying he's here voluntarily. He can leave anytime he wants. You know, this person's here. So she's probably thinking she's doing great things and making progress for these, for these guys because they haven't left. They're all there voluntarily, which blows McMurphy's mind away. <laughs> and sets him off on a pretty pretty negative downward spiral because uh, he feels like he was you know misled uh, but you know some of the stuff that happens to the other people on the ward I don't like I said I don't know how much of that is is policy how much of that is the doctor's decision and how much is hers you know just her word because I don't know if she actually is the one that sent them for uh, electroshock therapy or whether once there was the, the big argument and everybody went sideways, whether yeah. once the orderlies took him away, the doctor's like, all right, take him up. They need a, a dose of electroshock therapy to cool the fuck out. And I don't know how much of that was her. Yeah. It's for sure that the bigger villain than Mildred Ratchet is the system and mental health care has been uh super dysfunctional still is, but like, Things, honestly, weren't that different from this until about 20 years ago, and they're still not where they need to be today. Electroshock therapy, too. I remember being, when I was a kid, watching this for the first time, I was traumatized by it. It was unbelievable. I'm like, holy crap, they used to electrocute people's brains for this kind of stuff? And and, and, uh, it it is kind of interesting, and following up a little bit with Ken Casey is, you know, having him worked in the VA, you know, where some of this stuff comes from, you know, <laughs> the guys that you want a good biography, go back and learn about this guy. But, you know, and this is a, this is a man who wrote this book in regards to shock therapy that hooked himself up to a car battery and had his buddy shock him so he can feel, so he can figure out what it's like. But yeah, you, you're, you're right. It's almost like, uh, how can somebody in, in a mental health care facility where you're supposed to be taking care of these people put them through this such a, what I would consider a horrible and barbaric treatment? I mean, it's, it's sure. almost that. Ooh. Well, and, and Ken Kesey 
base Nurse Ratchet off an actual person um, that that was on where he worked. She was the the head nurse there. Um, and I saw uh, when I was doing some research that he was quoted that when he saw her again years later, he said she was much shorter and much more human than he had remembered. So, you know, perspective, I guess. And I think that goes to the point of them being there voluntarily. They walked in voluntarily, but when you get into that situation with the staff, it's almost like you create your own cage. Like, after a certain point, you've got this institutional mindset where even though technically, illegally, can you leave? Yeah, but are you ever going to? No, because you're completely dependent on the structure. You obey yes. second nature, and that's really uh, what our anti-hero is fighting against. The, yes. the whole institutional mindset where they're imprisoning themselves. It's that catch-22. You know, hey, uh, this is crazy. Yes, that's correct. So I'm crazy. Please ground me. No. The fact is you realize it's crazy means you're not crazy, so you have to keep flying bombing missions. <laughs> That's another we episode we we did we did not so long ago. Well, yeah, probably we now, pro- like two years ago. Whenever I think something's not so long ago, I find out. Oh yeah, that was three years ago. But yeah, I oh, I love Catch Twenty Two. But but anyways, yeah, you, you think about it, and that's what you. Know, I think is where McMurphy in the movie starts to crack because he he's realized he's completely at the mercy of this system. Now, how do you get out of the system that says you're supposed to be there? Yeah. Well, and he, I mean, for all intents and purposes, at least from what I gather from the, the what rewatching the film, you know, and having seen it so many times, he obviously threw himself into that thinking, okay, you know, I can go in here, you know, get do my 60 day evaluation or whatever, and then be on my merry way, or it's good either way, it's going to be easier than being at the work for work farm. Yeah. yeah he, uh, he thought his sentence was 68 days, no matter where he spent it. So he yeah. was like, well, why, why am I going to spend it on the work farm when I can go spend it over here with all the nuts? Mm-hmm. And then when he finds out, well, it's not 68 days if you go that route. It's when they say you can get out. Yep. Mm-hmm. And when you're pushing back like he was, I mean, they have every reason to to keep, keep you there. Yeah. And there are studies where there are uh, people who did social experiments who went undercover, checked themselves into a mental institution, and found it very difficult to get out. Like, even once their credentials were revealed, uh, they had been forced to be medicated, they had been diagnosed, and, like, it was very tough uh, for them to secure a release. So yeah, there's, there's you, stuff that happens. Yeah, you you hit on like a, a phobia of mine is, you know, if you think about, you know, periods in history and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, books and literature like 1984, not being in control of your own destiny, being at the complete mercy of the system and somebody that's in control of the system and is just doing it because they know they can do it. You know, how do you get out? How do you escape that? Sure, and when it comes to the staff, sometimes it's like what you see is what you expect to see. You mm-hmm. expect to see a crazy person, so you're able to interpret almost any set of behaviors, any that's, sort of like normal stress reaction. Yes, exactly, as being crazy. Mm-hmm. And if you're put in those, those situations, I mean, there's 
some wiggle room there for possible misdiagnosis because you know in different situations you may react differently to that and therefore that can lead you down a different path than what maybe would have happened if you would have done it outpatient or if you never would have been diagnosed to begin with so you know again it uh it's kind of a slippery slope Right. I, I can only imagine what would happen if I'd been voluntarily or maybe involuntarily by a family member committed. Like, I, I don't feel that I'm a danger to society. I take care of kids who have this kind of thing. But like, if I was in that situation, could I earn and secure my freedom? I'm not confident that the answer to that question is yes. Well, fun fact, I was uh, uh, institutionalized twice of by choice. Um, uh, and obviously was, was made it out, uh, fine on both occasions, but you know, the diagnosis I received while in the care of the hospitals was not the same diagnosis that I had once I went into outpatient, you know, psychiatrist, uh, counselor group therapy sessions. And obviously I'm fine now. So, you know, you never know. It's, uh. Now, after after putting it in this context, now it uh, it's a little scary looking back mm-hmm. on it. I was gonna say this shit got dark fast, and right? we haven't even gotten to the Ryan Murphy stuff. Yet. <laughs> yeah, I was going well, to say you did end up on this podcast, so hmm. ah, well, <laughs> that was a foregone conclusion. They knew me long before all that happened. Yeah, I wasn't necessarily going to bring that up, but when you said that, it was like, well, eh. well it's not like it's anything you- I hide. Do you have anything to say about uh, anything? We haven't heard from you in a while, so I'm throwing to you. <laughs> Save us, Pat. Uh, Dick and fart joke. <laughs> Good talk. Good talk. Yeah. Um, I, I too, like Joel, I don't, well, I don't know if I want to. Yeah, I've spent some time um, in an institution like these before for uh, suicide watch and things like that in the past and you know you're you're definitely right one of the one of the worst feelings while you're in there is the feeling of it's not up to me whether i get out or not and not not having your own freedom i mean it's just like you know being an insomniac and waking up at four in the morning and trying to go into the break room area and being told you know they're not going to turn the lights on because the lights don't come on till six just little things like that you're like you know so i'm just gonna sit here in the dark i guess (laughs) It makes you not want to go to prison, because um, yeah, for sure. Even I can't even, yeah, I can't even imagine what that. I mean, well, yeah. <laughs> hey, another fun, uh, another <laughs> fun topic. Yeah, I spent 17 hours in a holding cell once, and I never got released in the general population or anything. Thank goodness. But yeah, that was that was enough fun for me for the whole prison thing. I was like, okay, well, that's yeah. Don't want to do that again. Was it a Turkish prison? <laughs> No, it's, it's worse. It's a Texas prison. Oh God! Oh man! Yeah, yeah. So, how uh, about the ending? Like, since since I kind of feel we're heading to a natural conclusion towards the break, let's at least talk about the ending where uh, Chief uh, basically puts McMurphy out of his misery. Uh, iconic, man! That was a classic. Yeah, yeah, well, right. I mean, basically, basically, what what has led up to this is the fact that McMurphy just—it's a battle between a woman who, when you stand up to her, she 
stamps you out as fast as she can because she does not play games. And then you've got McMurphy, who is all about playing games. He's like, hey, I just want to mess with you and have fun. We're having a lot of we're we're doing some tit-a-tats and back and forth, some ha-ha, you know, you do this and I do that. He thinks he's like almost in a high stakes prank war where she's just like, no, I'm just going to drop a nuclear bomb on you. And when he finally snaps and tries to kill her after what she drove Billy Bibbit to do, which mm-hmm. was kill himself. And he kind of snaps and realizes, you know, the stakes are real here, tries to kill her. And she says, okay, well, you know, being the S that she is, she's going to take it one step further. You're going to attack me and try to kill me. Well, I'm going to take away what you love the most, your, your freedom and your ability to think for yourself. And takes I don't think in- that was her. I don't. Yeah, I, don't think, I don't think. It, I don't think it was her decision, but I think it was definitely her recommendation. I right. Yeah. She definitely had a voice in a, that happening. You're assuming though, because you never really see the decision. Well, I mean, if, if you if you go by the 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 knowledge we have now of the show Ratchet, I mean, they they make a point of talking about how the nurses run the hospital. Oh, not we'll the get doctors. to that. Yeah, we'll get to but that. I'm just saying, like, even at that point, Doctor Spivey wasn't the one that was around dealing with them all the time. It was always the it was always the um the guards and the nurses and the, nurses. And the orderlies, yeah. Yeah, orderlies right. that was the word I was looking for, yeah. And when it comes to case management, you're gonna go to the person that has the data, is collecting the data, and they're gonna make their recommendation, they're gonna have the loudest voice. So yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think that Ratchet's personal vendetta is one of the greatest factors that leads to his uh lobotomy and death. But, I mean, in a way, it's kind of a Pyrrhic victory for her because her voice is taken and her power is sort of broken. Yeah, but remember, McMurphy is still a violent person because you get that in the past because he's had assaults. Yeah, because he likes likes fighting and fucking. That's right. You know, but uh, so, you know, he is prone to violence. And you remember, you know, as as much of a fun-loving guy he is in there, you know, he he uh, has a pretty, you know, speckled past, and he's, he is prone to violence. So, but then on the flip side, I understand where you're coming from. You're right. You know, you would go to uh, her and uh, the people that deal with him on a daily basis. You know, but I, I'll tell you what, I, the, but the classic, you know, with the big chief realizing what they did to him. And uh, I like the line that he says, I'm going to take you with me. And then he, you know, and he snuffs him with the pillow, as in like he's freeing him with his spirit, right? So it's almost like very symbolic, almost you know Native American symbolic. I'm going to take you with me, you know, by taking his spirit with him as he finally goes and takes the idea that McMurphy had to, you know, bust through the window. And as he, you know, the, I, the iconic shot of the movie, of course, is him running, you know, uh, off into the distance, that you know, running through the wall. Parodied on The Simpsons. After you know, after reading the book, like we all said, you know that the mm-hmm. line he gives when he goes before he realizes he's been lobotomized. Yeah, I I feel as big as a mountain. You know, it, yes, it's an emotional line at that point. Yeah, I'm ready so, now. Yeah, I have a question about this, and uh, like I said, that was parodied on The Simpsons. But uh, <clears throat> upon watching this again and not having read the book in at least two decades. I have this feeling and maybe I'm wrong, but that when he's telling the story about his father and how, you know, he, he, the bottle sucked the life out of him. 
I get the sense that when he uh, basically euthanizes Big Murphy, that that's the same thing he did to his father. And that's why he's there. I don't know if that's true because I don't remember what what it, it said in the book. But with the way he tells a story and then the way he ends it and what he says to him, it feels like he had done that before as a as a mercy killing. That's a good theory. But the difference was is he he'd regained his self. Yeah, I can't yeah, I can't remember why he's in there. Yeah, yeah I, I haven't read the I read the book in, in fucking yeah. God twenty years ago or so. Nineties. Yeah, so I don't necessarily remember why he was in there. Yeah, I can't. That's, that's a good theory. That's a good theory that I cannot disprove. It just felt it felt like it with the the way they had written the dialogue that that was. Uh... Yeah how how great was that uh, the the whole the the whole boat scene take taking the boat convincing the the harbor master that oh no we we chartered they were this. all professors we're all doctors I, lo- I love how he, he goes through they're all doctors except for the one dude yeah. who, except for harding he's like professor harding everybody else is doctor dr martini doctor this professor harding yeah danny devito said that 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 whole take took uh, that whole scene took a week to film and to this day he still gets nauseous even thinking about it oh wow said everybody but jack nicholson got seasick at one point during that week that was good can can i ask this one question and i and i because you know how hollywood is and you know how hollywood can't come up with new stuff and they love to reboot everything so what do you think of the odds? You know, you, you kind of get it a little bit with Ratchet with the oh, we'll do the prequel thing, but do you think they're actually they'll actually try and remake this movie? I think if Ratchet turns into a success, they probably will. Yeah, or they'll make it a series. Maybe. That's the thing is, I think a television show is more likely because you don't see dramas remade quite as much as other genres. Hmm. Just like if if you're doing sci-fi, uh, there's a good like fifty-fifty shot. If you're doing horror, it's like an eighty percent chance if your movie was any good. Or sometimes, <laughs> even if it wasn't, it's getting remade. It's going to have eleven remakes. Action movies and comedies, yeah, action comedies. Any of those, you're fairly likely. But there's a real short list of dramas that actually get remade. Yeah. But it it would be interesting if you would have to cast with actors from today. I, I think you can almost make a good uh, game, you know, game and addendum to this podcast of who you'd replace. It'd be a, it'd be fun. But I think it would have to be a bunch of no names, just like because none of these guys were known at the time. Yeah. Back then. yeah, that's right. This is the movie that made Jack right, and Tom Hardy as Randall P. Murphy. <laughs> I don't know. He already played. He already played Bronson. So. The Rock as Chief. <laughs> Tom Hardy as Nurse Ratchet. <laughs> Tom Holland as... I thought, I thought it was going to be Ronda Rousey as Nurse Ratchet. Tom yeah. Holland as Billy Bibbit. <laughs> Eddie Murphy plays every other inmate. <laughs> Yikes. And Martini played by Danny DeVito. <laughs> Whoa! I didn't see that coming.
So I think we're kind of uh, headed towards a natural spot where we could take a break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the Ryan Murphy prequel uh, showing us the birth of the antagonist of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, Ratchet, in the uh, show, Ratchet. See you when we come back. I want my cigarettes, Nurse Ratchet. My cigarettes. My cigarettes! <laughs> that was a great one. I want mine. Well, we are back. Thanks for waiting for us. We're going to talk about uh, the new show, Ratchet, all about the... It is a what a prequel to One Flew Over the Cookies Nest, talking about Mildred, Nurse Mildred Ratchet. In the days before R.P. McMurphy. Origin story. Origin yeah. story, exactly. Because the movie takes place in the 60s? Yes. Or yeah. late 50s, early 60s? I forget. I, I looked this up and now I forgot. Yeah, they specifically mentioned a president at one point, and I can't even remember who it was now. Uh, I, think, I think it was Ford. Set during the early 60s. Yeah. And it makes the, sense. The novel was 62. TV yeah. show is 47 through like 50, the first season anyway. So the description taken off of Netflix is Ratchet is a suspenseful drama series that tells the origin story of asylum nurse Mildred Ratchet. In 1947, Mildred arrives in Northern California to seek employment at a leading psychiatric hospital where new and unsettling experiments have begun on the human mind. On a clandestine mission, Mildred presents herself as the perfect image of what a dedicated nurse should be but the wheels are always turning, and as she begins to infiltrate the mental health care system and those within it, Mildred's stylish exterior belies a growing darkness that has been smoldering within, revealing what true monsters are made, revealing that true monsters are made, not born. Man, that is a very verbose description. Thanks, yeah. Netflix. <laughs> and it's interesting that I, I, I'm not sure. Now, granted, I didn't 100% finish this. I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but this whole true monsters are made, not born. That is a description that at least at the beginning of the series is at odds with what it seems like the series is trying to say. I watched the entire yes. season. I did too, actually. I made it 50%. So, I, well, I rarely make it through the first season of these things that we watch for these shows, but this one I did. I and it wasn't necessarily, well, spoiler, it wasn't necessarily out of just straight enjoyment of it. It was just because I started watching on my breaks at work instead of oh. just instead of just, you know, fucking around and playing gin and stuff. So look at you being all grown up. Right? <laughs> I'd made it I made an adult decision. Aw. Patrick's growing up. He's all, all right, grown, he's all grows up. Let's uh let's get into the cast and uh cast and crew and Stuff. Yeah, so a uh, series directed by uh, Ryan Murphy did two episodes. Uh, <laughs> Michael Uppendahl did two episodes. Nelson Craig, Jennifer Lynch, Daniel yep. Minahan, and Jessica Yu all did one episode. That is David Lynch's daughter. Oh, okay. Fun. Oh, oh, good pull. I did not know that. Yep. She's a director. And that is uh, Mr. Uppendahl's son. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody should know Ryan Murphy from American Horror Story. Among many other things. Yes. But that's uh, the thing. That's, yeah, the Sarah Paulson connection. That is why it reminded me of American Horror Story. Okay. Yeah. Like, we're going to get to this because this is very, 
This is the most Ryan Murphy that Ryan Murphy ever Ryan Murphy. <laughs> well, he's not. He he's the other half of his team isn't with him. He's got a different uh, co-creator. I'm going to put so much Ryan Murphy all over this. <laughs> it uh, really yeah. well. I, I anyway, yeah, I'm going to revisit we'll this point. We'll, we'll get, get to that. Yeah. So yeah, series writing credits. Uh, Ken Kesey, obviously for the original book. Um, Ryan Murphy uh, wrote all 18 episodes, I guess. So oh, for well, the next season as well. Yeah, developed and created and everything written by. Him and Evan Evan Romansky, is that correct? Yeah. Romansky. 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 Six episodes written by, uh, with Ian Brennan and two Jennifer Salt. I don't know Just, any of those minor writers. Do you? No. Uh, I know her uh, sister, Pepper. <laughs> he just wanted to pepper that in there, you know, ah. for a little flavor. <laughs> just to sprinkle. Uh, uh, you guys. Peas in a pod. All right, moving on. Yeah, that, that, we don't we don't need another P like that. <laughs> we got a, we got a P problem in aisle five. <laughs> you right. should have gone with the string bean. I'm sorry. <laughs> so yeah, moving on to series cast. Uh, obviously, the the main star Sarah Paulson as Nurse Mildred Ratched. Um, you know her from such things as American Horror Story and everything else you watch on Netflix. She's everywhere. She's she's big right now. Yeah, she's and, awesome. and with justifiable reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And she's a particular favorite of the uh, Ryan Murphy. Like, he, he keeps going back to that well. Yes. Casting her. She is his muse, apparently. Speaking of which, the second cast member also is a Ryan Murphy favorite. Is mm-hmm. Finn, Finn Whitrock? Is that right? Is there an L in there? I can't tell. No, it's Whitrock. You're right. Okay. Yeah. Finn Whitrock. Plays Edmund Tolleson, the uh, is he crazy? Is he not crazy? Is he going to the chair? Is he going to stay in the asylum? Edmund is he going Tolleson. To Mexico? Is he going yeah. to Bermuda? Killer of priests and uh, savior of roosters. <laughs> he, and lover of animals. Yeah. He, he plays his role really well. Yes, I, he does. I would be scared in a room with him. Yeah, he's got a very intimidating presence. Yeah, he he's basically the guy who's not Evan Peters, who is like the other Ryan Murphy male lead. <laughs> and then wrong. the list of the list of uh of big names actually continues down the line. We've got Cynthia Nixon playing Gwendolyn Briggs, uh mostly known for uh Sex in the City, of course. Mm-hmm. And she's been on Broadway. She's a um well-known actress. Judy Davis as nurse Betsy Bucket. Judy Davis uh <laughs> Joel, but quite the tell, character arc. Yeah, tell us about Judy Davis. <laughs> the only thing I I really remember her from is uh new, the New Age with her and Peter Weller. Mm. But uh, yeah, she's she's an old school actress that uh, is kind of. I mean, she's still been working, but she's kind of fallen off. The she looked familiar to me, but I didn't know from what. And dude, Joel, Whoa. she was in Barton Fink. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. I, I was like waiting for you to say Barton <laughs> Fink. What what was she in Barton Fink? She's a minor character. Yeah. Mm. Audrey Taylor. That movie sucked. And I want to say she was in Naked Lunch, but I'm not 100% sure of that now. I think you are correct. Brent, what did you think of Barton Fink? Yeah, she was in Naked Lunch. Yep. She was uh, William. Uh, Why did I call you Brent? William Burroughs. I called you Brent. Wife. Well, the William Burroughs character's wife. Anyway. Blake. Yes. Have you seen Barton Fink? A long time ago. All right. Then you're excluded. He was asking I, I, your opinion on it because there's some 
dissension upon that film here. I wanted to know what side of the line you were on. If yeah, can... currently Patrick's outnumbered. In case fisticuffs come come crawling, you know, I want to know what side you were on. Um, every, yes. Every every time Barton Fink comes up, it's very contentious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> um, Doctor Richard Hanover is played by John John Briones. Another American Horror Story alumni. Oh, is he? Yep. Just one season, but hmm. a recent season. Uh, the Huck Finnegan, the uh, war veteran Huck Finnegan, is played by Charver. I'm not familiar with him as an actor. He's he's kind of an up and comer. He's done. He's got like I don't know 20 credits to his name right now. Uh, but yeah, he's he's coming up. Um, the team, Sharon team Wolf, <laughs> the new Teen Wolf. Yes. We we did a show. Yikes! That. Yeah, well, it wasn't that, that bad. I like no, Teen it, Wolf. It was pretty. It good. wasn't horrible. It just wasn't great. Either. Yeah, it, oh, yeah, it was a CW soap opera. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was and fine. He's coming out in the Batman. Oh, there you go. See, up and comer. What I say? Mm-hmm. You're right. All right, and then we've got uh... the leftovers. That's where I know him from. <laughs> oh Sorry, crap! Who was he in the TV. leftovers? He was Scott Frost. He was stuffing. Uh, dude. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, Speaking you may of know her. You may know her from her storied career in Hollywood, Miss Sharon Stone. Who's plays that? Lenore Osgood, the wealthy uh, woman looking for revenge for what Dr. Hanover had done to her son. She was almost unrecognizable. Right. Well, I knew I recognized mm-hmm. who, like, I was like, who is that? Because she sort mm-hmm. of uh, fulfilled the same role or type of role that you'd expect Jessica Lange to play in American Horror Story. Ooh. Oh, good call. Uh, but I was like, that's not Jessica Lange. It's much younger. And I was like, holy shit, that's Sharon Stone. Yeah. She's no, you're no Sharon Stone. It oh. took me a couple episodes to figure that one out. Yeah. Uh, next, we have Amanda Plummer as Louise. Ah, the hippie. The, the, the hippie. Uh, I don't know. What, what would you call her? The, the peeping Tom. Uh, sticking wow. her nose. House yeah. manager. Yeah. I love Amanda Plummer. <laughs> I was so happy to see her in the series. None of you motherfuckers. Um, Nurse Dolly, who is uh, the love interest for uh, Mr. Edmund Tullison, is played by Alice Englert. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Suddenly the the robot from Futurama showed up, the robot cop. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the uh, the asshole of the year award goes to Governor George Wilburn, played by right? Vi- Vincent D'Onofrio. Holy shit, he was an asshole! Yep. Wow, yeah. hell wow. yeah! Yeah, they he's they such, wrote. He's such a good actor. Yeah, they wrote that guy really, really friendly. Like, I think he Ooh. ate Jessica Lang though for the role. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, <laughs> he is bigger. Vincent D'Onofrio is now retaining water. Apparently. Well, I mean, he wasn't exactly small in Daredevil. No, no, he, he fluctuates though. He really does. He goes up and down a lot of times for the roles. I think he was he wasn't small in the breakup either. But he's so amazing. He's such a yeah, character. yeah. He's I I I celebrate his entire catalog. He's been hiding donuts in the Foot Locker again. <laughs> We're going back to the gun in the mouth thing. I was gonna say that sounds like the strangest euphemism I've ever heard. <laughs> And I don't know. Do any of these last four need to be mentioned? 
Uh, the very last one, Sophie uh, Okanedo, who played Charlotte. Go ahead. I, I just mentioned her. I know. I, there's a joke. You're supposed to then say, Sophie Okanedo played Charlotte. Never, you ruined my joke. Oh. Well, yeah, she's been in a lot of stuff, like uh, Hotel Rwanda. Uh, she, yeah, she was a minor character in Eon Flux. Like, I knew I had seen her from something. She's uh, going to be in Death on the Nile when it comes out. Ooh, the new yeah, one. Yeah, she's, she's done a lot, of, a lot of TV, and she's one of those faces you see her, and you're like, I know her from somewhere, but you're not necessarily sure where. You realize it's everywhere. Yeah. Yep. She had the, the pivotal role in Ace Ventura when nature calls. Was she the rhino? the princess oh that's where that's why laura was like i know who that is all right moving on to trivia murphy uses color in the costumes and sets to represent themes yellow equals deceit blue equals neutral red equals evil or badness white equals purity green equals honesty sometimes the costumes subtly change hue as one theme transitions to another i would not call it subtle I would. I like the color cells. Yes, uh, I did too. But I would definitely not call it subtle. No, Mm-mm. no. It was a very loud show. Yeah, I, there was no holding back. Young Nurse Ratched is played by actress Sarah Paulson, who is four years older than Louise Fletcher was when she played old Nurse Ratched in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That's some huh. good trivia. That is actually <laughs> really some good trivia. At first, I was like, "What? Oh, oh, oh." Huh. And then he was, and then he was like, "Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. wait a minute! She's how much older? Four years. Crazy, right? That well, what's crazy about that? She's only two years younger than I am, or two years older than I am. Yeah, I was going to say she's she's right in the wheelhouse between our ages. So the original Nurse Ratchet was only forty. She looked a lot <laughs> older. Evil ages you. Sorry, Louise Fletcher." <laughs> Or makes you younger. It depends if you're drinking the blood or not. Johnny Osmond, I'm looking <laughs> at you. Not the years, it's the mileage. <laughs> and you did tie in Donny Osmond. I heard that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how we roll. Musical themes from the soundtracks <laughs> of composer Bernard Herrmann are used throughout the series, including excerpts, excerpts from the soundtracks of Vertigo, North by Northwest, and Cape Fear. Mm. Psycho as well. Yeah, why would they put that at yeah, the end? Why like, is it written like that? <laughs> period. Psycho as well. Period. I forgot what year Psycho was made in. <laughs> Three word sentence. <laughs> and lastly, when Sarah Paulson heard Rosanna Arquette on the media talking about how after denouncing Harvey Weinstein, she hadn't worked much in the industry, she contacted her to offer her a role. It was a small of, role. The role of Anna, the social worker, who I did not even recognize. When I saw her in the credits, I was like, who the hell was... And I looked up, oh, she played Anna. Well, who the hell was Anna? <laughs> oh, come on, man. Uh, well, you had her and Amanda Plummer, both from Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Ruth. Yep, yep. So, yeah. Um, as we said earlier... Um, Thoughts. Well, no, first of all, uh, who got far farthest in this? Uh, I watched the whole thing, and Joel watched the whole thing, correct? Yep. Yes, sir. And, I watched uh, the first five episodes. And I didn't get quite as far as Blake did. Five, five is the majority, at least five out of eight. You know, true. I, 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 I kind of felt that I'd gotten what I needed to. <laughs> I I found this pretty rough to watch, but it was intriguing still. But it was still a, a little bit a little bit difficult for me. But uh, now, when but you say I, difficult, though, what do, what do you mean? Clarify. Eh, difficult. 
uh, difficult as in uh, not easy. <laughs> I, I I really I really can't emotionally connect with any of these characters, and I, I think that's a good thing. But because uh, you you want to root for somebody in this, and and there are times where Nurse Ratchet in this this version of Nurse Ratchet, there are times where you're like you you can't root for her, but then you kind of do depending upon the situation. You know, she does have a bad side. You know, well, yeah, obviously. I mean, you- as, as the observer, watch you never know when she's being manipulative and when she's being genuine. Honest, yes, that is that is correct. You don't know if she's playing that person or character, or if she's being genuine. You know, like when she helps, uh, you know, break the two ladies out. You know, is she being genuine because she's realizing her own situation and her own, you know, feelings that she's dealing with? You know, and. You know, obviously the relationship between her and her brother is uh, disturbing at this mm-hmm. point. But, but I haven't seen the end yet. You know, but uh, you get I, a lot it, more. You get a whole episode yeah. about that at, at towards the end. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. I, I mean, I intend to finish it. I hope, do intend. Hope to you like puppets. <laughs> <laughs> He's not joking. <laughs> I like Literally. the puppet show. No, no but uh, the puppet show. Yeah. So it, 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 and it's kind of interesting because, you know, I almost kind of want to root for her sometimes, but then I, I can't, you know, and, and, and there's not really a, a redeeming character, you know, other than Huck, you know, I think, but, uh, it, but it, and it's kind of graphic, you know, a lot of people, you know, sensitive, but there, I love the colors They're I think they're all intentionally bold, you know, flat 1950. Uh, I love the, the, you know, the cinematography. I like how, the directors and the scene shoots of how they can just build a mood. You yeah, know, visual, with, visually, this is a, a striking series. Yes, it is a visually striking series. It, it is. And so I yeah. guess there are a few things that Ryan Murphy does well, and uh, that is cinematography and like building a compelling story where. Uh, by the end of what's going on, there's a breadcrumb that makes you want to find out what happens next. True. And, yeah, and I, I think that those elements are present here. The, and it is. I think that's probably why I've, I've made it as far as I have and intend to finish. I mean, just the intro itself lends itself to questions of why do each of the things happen throughout the intro? And to be honest, by the end of the last episode, you've only got a small portion of that intro figured out. I'm glad you mentioned the intro, because while I do not intend to finish this, uh, I super appreciate that the opening theme song is my favorite piece of classical music. Mm. Yeah, Dance Macabre. And you know what other movie that was in? It's been in a bunch of movies. Oh, yeah, but... I, the, but I mean, what, Tombstone is the obvious yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, that's the one, the one I was looking for. <clears throat> Tombstone. Oh, it was? Yeah, yeah, it is the theme song when uh, she's playing the devil uh, uh, aside Billy Zane. Yeah. The, the Faust tale. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, We're learning. Cool. I am. I'm Yay. learning something. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah. I, I want to say one of the main reasons, like I said, this is the most Ryan Murphy thing that Ryan Murphy ever Ryan Murphyed, <laughs> is because, like, every single character, the word I would use to describe them is lurid. Like they're everyone either has a dark secret or a twisted perversion or a mm-hmm. past that is fucked up somehow. Like even like Bucks wears his on his face from his time in the war. Mm-hmm. Every every character feels like an RPG character. 
Oh yeah. They are a little caricature-y at times. And I was just like, you know, I, I've, I'm not anti-Ryan Murphy. Like, I watched Nip Tuck. I watched, like, five seasons of Glee. I, I watched a bunch of American Horror Story. But I, I just kind of felt like I've already seen a lot of his storytelling. And this is just more of the same, but one flew over the cuckoo's nest flavored. And... I kind of think after the episodes I saw, I'd had enough. I I, kind of got what I needed out of this. Well, and and upon posting online that I was watching this for the show, uh, I got that from a couple other people that said that, you know, they made it through a couple episodes and stopped. And they were like, well, it's pretty pretty good you made it through the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I have thoughts, but if you have something to say, Blake, go ahead. You you just burned something in me when you're when you're uh, you were just talking about all the characters and uh, and you're talking about them all being RPGs and they're I think something that I just realized as I come to this epiphany uh, they're in a mental hospital and but everybody that's in there is broken everybody is broken and needs fixed so it's not just the in you know people that are there seeking help to get corrected they're well, all. I mean- they're all broken people. You're right. They yeah. all have their perversion or they all have their in, in they all have their insanity. Right. And that and, and yeah, and the fact that they are the, the forgotten dregs of society is why so many charlatans are able to get in even on the staff. Yeah, they're all yes, the fake oh my gosh, yeah, that's correct. And you're right, the reveals behind all the characters, yeah. So Oh crap! I realized that in the cast list, uh, we we missed a semi-major actor. Like he's a big character actor, or Corey Stahl, who uh, plays the detective turned hitman. Oh, oh yeah! Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah! yeah, yeah! Yeah, he was completely left off, and like I, I've uh, been following him since. Uh, well, obviously he was in Ant Man, but uh, where I first remember encountering him was House of Cards. Yep. Yeah, he was a main antagonist in Ant Man. Uh yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh no, I was just—I I, I just when you were talking about broken characters, I was thinking, well, he's one of the characters that barely interacts with the asylum itself. I was like, holy crap, yeah, he's a pretty big actor. We should mention him. That—that's all I had to say. Um, I—I I have kind of a love-hate relationship with American Horror Story. Like, there are some seasons that, like Asylum, which I know a lot of people didn't care for, is is probably my favorite season that I've seen followed by a freak show, but I, I have a hard time finishing it. Like, I don't know if it's that it's, there's too much going on or that it's the way it's portrayed. There's something about the show that doesn't draw me back in to watch another season. And so I haven't seen a lot of the recent seasons. So uh, watching this, uh, I kind of came in a little bit with that preconceived notion. It, while it is very beautiful to look at, I found myself hating what they did with the character. Uh, they turned her into like almost like a Hannibal Lecter-esque type villain. And as I spoke about in the first half, I don't see her as that. And it's almost like Ryan Murphy's like, okay, how can I make this American Horror Story ratchet? And th- they turned her into this just multi-murdering Well, he whatever. obviously came from, came from the point of view that she was an evil woman. And it's but, obvious through the writing. Oh, yeah. directing. <laughs> but I mean, they, they turned her into such an evil person that. Uh, yes. It, it's it. It really. Some cognitive it really, dissonance there for you. 
yeah, it, it, it was detrimental to the source material because there wasn't that much in the source material to build this off of. And where he was pulling it from, I, I have no idea. But I found myself enjoying the experience of watching it as a from an artistic standpoint, but hating it at the same time from the character standpoint. And the big one of the biggest things that I had problems with is, uh, well, not the biggest thing, but one of the things I had problems with is if I remember correctly in the Ken Kesey book and in the the film, it's a state run hospital. It's not a private institution, if I remember correctly. And yeah, it was state run. Yeah, that's why the, the doctor had kept having meetings with all kinds of officials. That's what I thought. And it, it, during the course of the show and spoiler alert, I don't know where they revealed it, but she's not actually a nurse. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, okay, yeah. she might be able to slip through into a private institution that's not run by the state, but how in the fuck did she get onto a state-run mental hospital without any credentials? Well, I think that's why they ended up making up. it privately owned before the season was over. Well, and like, that's pretty like, well... Has, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, because so, halfway through the season, suddenly there's a new character and she's the owner of the place. Well, and that's addressed... Joel's question is she worms her way into an interview that she's not qualified for and gets a provisional, like manipulates to make sure that there's an opening when they're going to need staff, gets Mm -hmm. a provisional uh, like trial day and then hides a body for the doctor. And all of a sudden she's invaluable. Well, I don't mean on this show. I mean, by the time the sixties roll around and she's, Okay, work, I get you. I working get you. with Randall P. McMurtry, McMurphy, sorry. Uh, how in the hell did she get hired there? Because, I mean, granted, things were a little different then, but I don't think they were different enough that they would have hired her on and made her, you know, the head nurse at this state-run facility if she had no no proof anywhere that she was actually a, a trained nurse, that she was actually well, went through schooling. I can even speak to that. Now, granted, this is private, not public, but you would be surprised how often credentials are missing and just no one has done a regulatory pass. <laughs> like people who are administrators, like I want to be careful because I'm still actively in the inventory, uh, in the uh, industry. And I will clarify that I'm not talking about anyone who I'm working with now, but I have known people in the past that have not had the credentials to do their job and it's just been missed. Yeah, fake it till you make it. And yeah, if no, if when you've been there for 10, 20 years, no one even bothers to ask who you work with. And until the state comes through and does an audit of like, does everyone have the qualifications to do their job? You can get away with it for a literal decade. I don't know. Even today. But, but I, I, but I understand your point when you're comparing this ratchet to the one flew of the cuckoo's nest and it's very interesting. My my daughter's twenty five. She binged Ratchet and she loved it. And she was a, she's an American Horror Story fan. And so this weekend we sat down together. I said, "Now you're going to see where Nurse Ratchet comes from." This is one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I told her about Casey, you know Ken Kesey and and stuff. And I think she was kind of shocked and like, "This completely different person than what I know." And for me, on the flip side, being the old guy having done one flew over the cuckoo's nest first coming to this ratchet you're right i see how i can't part of the reason that i'm I'm having a difficult time getting through it but still want to 
is that I I can't put that ratchet and connect it to the ratchet that's in the movie. Like if they would have made a series and negated the whole nurse ratchet aspect and just like called it, I don't know, like angel of mercy or something. And it was, you know, about nurse Flanagan. I would have enjoyed the series a lot more, but because why she, were, had, why she got to be Irish, uh, racist. Okay, <laughs> Nurse Smith. Uh you know that's, if, that's too bland. Send that back to R and D. You know, I just felt like they, you know, they were shitting all over the the source material. Uh, yeah, it just I, I think they did a d- disservice to the character of Nurse Ratched in the original source material. Like she's this this Nurse Ratched is much more. Um, sociopathic and much more um, just, I mean, for lack of a better word, evil. I mean, there's just, there's, there's just, you know, there's no, there's no debate. There's no anything, you know, watching one floor over the cuckoo's nest, we can have the debate is nurse ratchet evil watching ratchet. You're you're like, okay, well the decision is made for you. Right. You know, she, she's um, prepared to hide bodies and, and, and chop heads off and stage murders and, and, you know, just all this kind of crap, you know, and it's like she's gone well beyond just a woman who, you know, is a control freak to she's just a straight up sociopath Dexter type. Well, uh, and even I don't, after, oops. Oh, sorry. I, was, I, I just wanted to build on this point because there's one thing you guys are missing and I don't disagree with you, but uh, there isn't a big blank spot between One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Ratchet. Uh, Nurse Ratchet also appears in Once Upon a Time. Well, as a but, very clearly evil character. So the character as a villain, this is not unprecedented is the only point I want to throw out there. But the, the characterization in, in, uh, uh, once upon a time is, I mean, I, again, doing, I've never seen the show, but in the, some of the, uh, the, the study of it, um, where was it? You know, people basically said she was just like a big crybaby, and it wasn't, it didn't really uh it didn't really have the same tone as one flew over the cuckoo's nest uh and i again i haven't seen it so i don't know you would have more knowledge on that than i than yeah I, I have seen it although i, I uh was not watching regularly by the time her character showed up but she has gone beyond just this character who has appeared twice and she is an icon of a very particular mental health nurse who is a bad person as that and, archetype, and they're riffing on that theme. In and this. one of one of the things about about uh, the different big difference between the movie and the show is that it's a lot easier. It's kind of like the the Jaws principle. It's like it's a lot easier to let your imagination go in one flew over the cuckoo's nest as to who she is as a person because she spends ninety percent of her time just staring deadpan, and you can't have a, a eight episode TV show with nurse, nurse ratchet, just staring deadpan at the camera. She's got to have personality. She's got to have lines. She's got to have this and that. So it's like one of those things where like, you know, in, in the original jaws, the shark was much more intimidating because you saw it a lot less and it built up the tension and whatever. Whereas if it had been the original version, like what Steven Spielberg wanted, where the shark had been in, involved in 50 to 60, 70% of the shots, it would have ruined it. And that's kind of what happened with this series is they ruined nurse ratchet by having her, by peeling back too many of the layers. Well, and there's some aspects of the characterization that make sense. Like you talk about, you know, how she sits there and she's just kind of cold and, and stares and, and you kind of get the sense that, 
her job is her life. Like when she leaves work, I imagine she goes home to a house by herself, you know, makes her plain white toast, has her tea, you know, reads a book uh, and goes to bed. You know, there's not a lot to her daily life. She's kind of shut down to emotional attachments. And I think they kind of play I, that. I think she's like a an EDM raver at night. <laughs> but I mean, you know, they because they have her get into a relationship and it's obviously going to be a doomed relationship eventually. And the the nature of a relationship isn't accepted at the time. So, you know, I can see where she would have some of those characterizations that are carried over. Um, but... Uh, <clears throat> Some, sometimes you just don't do the Han Solo origin story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I know, but maybe, maybe you're right. In this case, less would be more, you know, so. And I mean, even uh, in the episode where they give her backstory via the puppet show, it still doesn't justify her actions. It gives her more of a reason, but it doesn't justify it. No, not, not at all. And no. And as far as like just the the overall story arc, I didn't like how they tied up some of the things by the end of it. I don't n- want to spoil it for you know for Blake or anybody that's listening that wants to watch the whole thing. I didn't like the 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 Deus that that they used. Basically, just I didn't I didn't like it at all. Mm. You know what I'm talking about, Joel? And how they're leading into a second season? Well, no, no, I'm talking about like oh. like what <clears throat> what spurred. You know, the character coming back in the final episode and spurring on the escape and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I did not care for that at all. I was like, come on. You know, that, that just felt too... Hannibal Lecterish. Yeah, and just too forced and too everything. I was, I was like, you know, it just felt too too lazy. I, I don't know. There, there was a lot about this that I didn't like. Just because I watched all eight episodes doesn't mean I liked it. I just found myself continuing to watch it because I, you know... The game kept going, so I kept having breaks. <laughs> and I mean, I don't know if I would watch a second season or not. I mean, it's... it's I know for a fact I'm not going to. If if and when it happens, I mean, I, I assume it's done fairly well. I don't know, you know, what their, their ratings are, but uh, I mean, they clearly have pitched it, and it's got a listing as having a second season that's I don't know what stage it's at, but that it's been announced, so... It's at least yeah. in production. <clears throat> it's been picked up for sure. It's happening. I just... I don't know. I don't yeah, know it was it was it. it was a it was pretty. I mean, but I didn't I didn't like a lot of the characters. I didn't like the way it ended. I didn't like yeah, it's like some, who, some who of you, the character motivations and stuff. Who are you rooting yeah. for? Who are you rooting for? Yeah, the mayor. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm the not mayor. one. Yeah, we've had this discussion before on some of our episodes. I'm not one of those guys that I don't need to have somebody to root for. I don't need to like a character to like something. I, I mean. I don't care. I just like a good story. And I felt like, you know, this had potential to have a good story, but it never really just, it just kind of threw a bunch of shit against the wall and just, you know, didn't really have a, a great story. It just had a lot of average stories. I mean, you can have deplorable characters that <clears throat> are your leads. I mean, just look at, uh, uh always sunny. Uh, well, in, well. In, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. They're deplorable characters, but you like them. Mm-hmm. Our, uh, a clockwork orange that's what i was oh, thinking yeah. of you know that's mm-hmm. a that's a horrible movie and not a bad mm-hmm. movie but i mean it's 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 hard to watch and mm-hmm. your quote-unquote heroes of the film your your main protagonist is not a good guy but there's something about it that you know makes it interesting and you want to watch it and you want to see the arc of the character yes uh, and and 
you're you're right you want to see well, the I mean, arc of the character you know the nature versus nurture one of you when you were talking about the breakdown you know uh you know the the the, the maid not born one uh one of you commented <laughs> ah maid not born it says so you're you're right you're an observer i guess in you're right you don't have to be rooting for anybody and, and it is kind of hard to watch you know the eight you know uh you know what you're talking about so but you're 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 watching them go through their story, I guess. Yeah, and I don't know. I was the one that was talking so much about uh, made not born. Whether that's even true at the beginning of the series, and that may be true by the end. But in the first couple of episodes, especially with the reveal that uh, Ratchet and Tullison are brother and sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel that uh, if someone's gotten this far in the episode, they're not afraid of that spoiler. <laughs> yeah. the, the initial uh, conceit of the series is that there's something with this family that if they were made, they were starting to be forged into monsters almost from birth. And that kind of, to me, begs the question, if both of these members of this family were like this, maybe there is something to the idea that they were born this way. Well, and they, they try Ryan Murphy or whoever came up with the, I assume it's, it's his, you know, conceptualization of it tries to make that point later on in the, in the show that, you know, she wasn't born that way. She was made into that by her, you know, her upbringing, her surroundings. Well, both of them. Right. And they both kind of took slightly different paths, but, I still don't feel like the justifications that he provided are ample enough to really to ring true. And I'm guessing that the justification for the brother is sexual abuse at the hands of priests and hers is society's uh, pressures against uh, any form of being out as someone who's a lesbian. Nope. Nope. Okay. Uh, I, that, that would have been my prediction from what I'd seen thus far. I, I would agree. But that, apparently, there's there's a twist that I did not see coming. Yeah, they they didn't go they didn't go down the the uh, the road you thought they were going to go down at least. But I mean, it it, it doesn't necessarily make it uh, an interesting is not the word I'm looking for, but you know, compelling, I guess. Yeah, I got you. It's not the obvious uh, kind it's of not the, not the predictable one, right? Right. Well, I mean, it's like he tries to take a I don't want to say a trope because it happens to people on a regular basis, but yeah. He tries to take a certain uh, trope for this type of behavior, and he kind of turns it up to 11 for shock factor, I feel. But Mm -hmm. it it still doesn't, because I've known people that have been in in similar situations that have turned out to be amazing human beings. So, you know, it can go both ways, but I don't know. It just, it felt a little heavy-handed, forced. That shock factor you talk about gets back to my statement that all of these characters are lurid in some way. And, and that, it's, I, yeah, I think that's what I was kind of getting at. And it's, it's, it's Murphy, you know, it's, he likes to kind of push the boundaries a little bit um, with his storytelling, whether it's to the absurd or it's to the extreme um, from the other, you know, seasons of American Horror Story. <clears throat> I've never seen Glee or uh, I remember what other show you mentioned that he was part of. Uh, Nip Tuck. I mean, there's Scream Queens. There's a bunch of others. I I think I've seen a couple episodes of virtually everything that he's done. 
and a lot of those he's partnered with Tim Minear on, who was a big uh, driving factor behind the X-Files. So, well, yeah, and Minear was a producer on this. We didn't mention him in the cast, but they're frequent collaborators. And Nip Tuck but, is pretty dark, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, oh, that's yeah. the thing is I know I've been uh like kind of down on this, but it's more this in particular than uh his stuff in general. Uh I, I don't know that I'm a fan, but I've obviously watched quite a bit of it. Yeah. So there's something there. There's something of value. I just this one didn't hit for me because it was it was too much. Uh and I don't think it necessarily earned all of the this episode we're going to discover uh, three more sex scandals and two more people who are struggling with their sexuality. Like those are stories worth telling, but I'm not sure that this the framing earned those plots. It's like I said, it's just, it's just a smattering of average stories instead of just five or six really good stories. And he's capable of telling good stories about people struggling with their sexuality in a society that does not approve. I've but, seen that in other stuff that he's done. Yeah, this was not it, though. This was not it. Yeah. You you want to see a more mature take on that? Watch Pose. Um, uh, watch even some of the early episodes of Glee. There's some good stuff there, e- even though, uh, yeah, Glee is not exactly hard-hitting. <laughs> but, yeah, this this one did not work for me. So are we uh, at that point, it sounds like? Where, where we're going to ask the obvious question, the uh, thumbs up, thumbs down for uh, both the original and the, the the now? I think so. Okay, yeah. If I, no one else has uh, got anything to say, let's, let's do it. Uh, let's start with Patrick. Uh, thumbs up, thumbs down on uh, then and now. Uh, thumbs up for Cuckoo's Nest. Obviously, it's an incredible movie. And, I mean, I, 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 would, I would like to go thumbs sideways for ratchet but i'm not go- but i'm not gonna do that i will commit i will say thumbs down just because i'm i mean it was fine it was fun to you know it, it i would not have fun but it was nice to watch it was a pretty show that i i enjoyed the costumes and the looks and the cars and everything and you know and the, the period piece and all that stuff but the acting was good but i just i don't know it just it was never really compelling i just kind of watched it because I wanted to just get through all eight. It wasn't like I felt like I needed to get through all eight. I just was like, okay, I think I'm going to get through all eight for this show. And so I just did it and I'm not going to watch the second season because I don't have to. (laughs) So yeah, I got to give it a thumbs down. Um, How about you, Joel? Uh, Well, I mean, obviously one for the cuckoo's nest is a thumbs up. It's one of my top 10 favorite films of all time Uh, for nurse ratchet. If, you could take it and make it a different character in the same circumstances. Based on that, I would, I would give it a hesitant thumbs up. Uh, but because it, you know, they insisted on it being this character, it, it's really apprehensive. Uh, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. Just like I said, it, it would be good enough on its own. Just that threw a big monkey wrench in it. You said a lot of things, but nothing about your thumb. <laughs> oh, I, I'm giving it a, a hesitant thumbs up, but even though I feel like okay. uh, he, so he shit all over Nurse Ratchet. Fair enough. Uh, we're going to give uh, our guest, the host, uh, the honor of going last because mine is super obvious. I'm a big thumbs up for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and a pretty emphatic thumbs down for Ratchet. Uh, so, right. like, Yes, I, I'll tell you what, though. The one thing that I really learned this evening is that 
I have to work the word lurid more into my <laughs> daily conversations. <laughs> I like that word. Uh, sultry is another good one. Ooh, sultry. I'll, I will have to. De- I mean, it's a no-brainer. One through, you know, flew over the cuckoo's nest. Then, definite thumbs up. Uh, Nurse Ratchet. Okay. I like I said. I'd like to give it, like you said earlier. I like to give it a, a, a thumb sideways, almost going down on some things. You know, I'm really wishy-washy. But before I could actually do a, an up or down for it, I, I would like to complete the experience first. And I wish I did before uh, we worked uh, this evening. But uh, life gets in the way sometimes. So I made it so far through. But I can say for uh, Alice Engler's character, I give her three thumbs up. <laughs> there you go. All right, so if you have your thoughts about whether hey, any of the things we've talked about, whether uh, Mildred Ratchet in the original was a good person or not, uh, did she get a bad rap? Um, is she the monster that uh, they're making her out to be throughout her character journey through multiple forms of media? I want to hear uh, what you have to say on the subject. Uh, give us a call at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. And, of course, if you want to hear more of the show, you can always find us on uh, Apple Podcasts, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podverse FM, NoonFM.com. Uh, as we said at the top of the show, we appear on Geek Life Radio. Uh, you can also find us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, TuneIn Radio, on Music, all sorts of places. And uh, it, you can interact with us on Discord, on our Facebook page. Uh, we're all over your internets. So. Yeah, if just Google forty going on fourteen. If you can't find us, then you're not using Google properly. Podchaser, <laughs> and let, let's give uh, Blake a, a chance to plug history of bad ideas. Uh, one of the few <laughs> podcasts besides our own that I've ever listened to. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes, history of bad ideas. We are not a history podcast. <laughs> In. <laughs> And yes, uh, it's great. Thank you very much, guys. I had uh, a lot of fun here tonight. And, you know, we need to get, you know, you guys uh, coming on over to ours as well. Uh, And the same thing, iTunes, you know, Twitter, Facebook, um, you know, Ibsen Radio, uh, Libsyn, Geek Life Radio is coming back. It's great. Um, Same thing. Ditto. All right, cool. And uh, before we get out of here, Joel, what do we got coming up in the next couple of weeks? Uh, well, we've got a, tri- a visit to Hazard County to hang out with the Dukes. Uh, we're talking about Sleeping in Dreams, their road trip movie show, Coming to America, Parts 1 and 2. And, believe it or not, we're doing a Punky Brewster show, much against, I think, Pat's chagrin. Yeah, I, I don't believe it. It's coming. <laughs> I'm sick that week. Glomer and all. Oh, wait, no, that was a cartoon. Never mind. Yeah, so thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for being here, Blake. My pleasure. We'll we'll see you in the next coming weeks. In the meantime, medication time. I want my cigarettes. Medication time. (laughs) I want my cigarettes. Hit me. My cigarettes. Hit me. Uh, (laughs) Don't believe I'm crazy. What do I got? Jerk off right here. significance of that is that at the Clearfield Cheese Company in 
Kerwinsville, Pennsylvania, Arnold Narwaki <laughs> debuted his invention, a method <laughs> method. <laughs> Narwaki doesn't de- derail me, but method does. To wrap 600 individual slices of cheese <laughs> per minute. Start, start over. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I just slammed a Red Bull before we started. So I'm like, <laughs> He's vibrating right now. I was like, I'm feeling a little tired. Let's hammer back one of these things. All right.